everybody, and welcome to another edition of Entrepreneur Rx, where we help healthcare professionals own their future. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Entrepreneur Rx. Today, I'm in the great pleasure of talking with Dr. Stephen Charlap, whose health career spans over 30 years and has taken him, and we're going to go through these in a variety of directions. Uh, Steve is trained as a surgeon. He has an MBA. Uh, Post-MBA, he did the Director of Corporate Development for T-Cell Sciences, which is a publicly traded biotechnology company, uh, where he oversaw uh, technology licensing and pharmaceutical partnerships. And then in 89, he left to found uh, his own company and became CEO and Chief Medical Officer of Health Drive, which was the nation's largest uh, provider of medical and dental services to extended care facilities, which is super remarkable. Um, today, Steve is working on a project called SOAP that we'll get into um, because I have a real interest in AI, and it's what we, you and I were just talking about before we started. So, Stephen, welcome. Thank you. Glad you to be here. You have a super long introduction that I uh, that I <laughs> skipped about two thirds of because I want to I want to go through it all as opposed to me just reading it. So, Steve, give us a little bit of background about how you ended up even just going to medical school. As I recall, you were a drama undergrad major yeah i was a speech and drama major with basically a film minor uh, always attracted to the creative sides of uh industry unfortunately when i was 17 years old my uh, high school guidance counselor talked me out of going into advertising and architecture by giving me some BS excuses why they weren't a fit for me. When I got to college, I fell in with the wrong crowd, uh, all the guys who wanted to become doctors. and uh, But I wanted to not go through college just for the purpose of getting into medical school. So I decided to take a different path and, and keep things interesting, uh, taking a lot of speech courses and film courses and uh, really uh, made college much more meaningful for me. So you went to undergrad at Yeshiva University? Yep, Yeshiva University in Manhattan. In Manhattan. And then where? And then did you go right into medical school after that? Yes, then I went to NYU for medical school. Then I did a surgical residency at Beth Israel. Uh, and then I went to Harvard for business school. And then I uh, went to work for a publicly traded biotech company. Uh, I spent a year and a half there. I got a big deal done with Smith Klein Beecham. And then I started my own company. Wow. Did you, was that, so was that straight through residency, MBA, and then biotech company? Yep. Did uh, you? I did work, I did work for another company, a publicly traded small company between first and second year business school and part of second year. I was pretty poor uh, at the time. I had to beg the business school to give me a uh, scholarship because I literally no longer had a penny to my name. And I was married with a very young baby. So I, I pleaded with them and they eventually gave me a scholarship. Now, did you did you finish a, a surgical residency? I did two years, uh, which is what I knew I needed in order to get a license in most states in the United States. And, and I've gotten licenses in multiple states. I'm currently licensed in Florida. Wow. But did you, I mean, when you were doing it, did you think, you know, this surgical gig is cool, but it's probably not where I want to spend my life. Was that the construct that you went through or were you for a while dead set on being a surgeon? You know, I, I went into surgery because I thought it would be more exciting. But what I found out, it was essentially um, 
it was like a trade, uh, no different than a uh, a building uh, uh, handyman, not a handyman, but I'm saying somebody who does a particular trade in construction. Uh, it's more about the hands than it is about the thinking, at least that's how I perceive surgery. But um, what happened that actually was the defining moment in changing trajectory, because I really didn't want to be uh, a surgeon or a doctor, believe it or not. Uh, I liked helping people, but I found it very limiting uh, to be one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, although I did have patients write letters to the dean of my medical school saying how good I was one-on-one, -on -one, but I didn't uh, so much enjoy that. Uh, I wanted to do something that was more meaningful and more impactful. But what happened was that um, I went out to dinner with my wife during my uh, first year of residency, and I met a guy who was uh, ranked right below me in college who ended up going to Harvard uh, Business School. And I remember thinking at the time I was going to medical school, he was going to business school, that there was something wrong with him uh, for, for going to business school when he was smart enough to go to medical school. And so I bumped, I saw him in a restaurant, I went up to him, I said, how'd you like uh, business school? And he said it was great. And I was like, what? I've never gone to school and ever said it was great. So I went back to my wife and I said, this guy said business school was great. That's it, I'm leaving medicine, I'm going to business school. And, and that was the, uh, the point of uh, no return. That's that's classic. You know, it's kind of funny on your LinkedIn page it said to save the lives of millions of people I will never meet. That that may be one of the best missions I've ever seen on anybody's LinkedIn page, which kind of speaks to what you're just talking about. You want to make you want to make a difference for more than one person at a time. Yeah, look, I love mentoring and I've mentored over 400 companies and anybody who contacts me on LinkedIn and wants to be helped with something they're working on other than if they're trying to sell me, even if they're trying to sell me, I always I always connect with them. And then I say, no, thank you. I, I think it's the humanistic thing to do. They're just trying to make a living. But if they need help, uh, they have a question, they want me to help answer it. I'm always willing to help answer something, particularly if it's business related or medically related. Uh, but for me, I feel that my time on earth needs at this point in my life to be dedicated to helping as many people as possible. I'm driven by a mission. I lost an older brother who I love very dearly. I shared a room with him growing up uh, in a three bedroom in Brooklyn in a walk up. Uh, he was the brother that spent the most time with me. I have an older brother as uh, older brother as well, but this was the brother that we I grew up with. Uh, and he passed away from a misdiagnosed cancer. The cancer was diagnosed way too late despite a extensive family history. And my mission is to save a million lives in his memory. And unfortunately, uh, several weeks ago, a very dear friend lost her life to a misdiagnosed cancer. And so I've dedicated now my efforts, not only to my brother, but to this very dear friend. Uh, and I almost lost my life to a misdiagnosed heart condition. And so misdiagnosis is something that's really uh, gotten to the, to the very core of me. So I'm obsessed now with solving this. And people don't understand why I work seven days a week, don't take any compensation, because I'm on a mission. And it is the very essence of why I live now is to realize success at that mission. Even though I've got grandchildren coming all the time and I want to spend time with them and I love my wife, I love spending time. But anyway, yeah, so that's, that's what I'm all about at the moment. So, so I want to talk a lot about what you're doing to save a million lives, but let's let's talk about this intervening, the building block years. 
So you went for the publicly traded companies. You made a deal with Smith Klein at the time. And then what was the company that you found that it became CEO of? Yeah, it was called Health Drive, and we became the largest provider of medical and dental services to extended care facilities in the United States. And while we were there, uh, while I was there, we also developed what we believe to be the world's first mobile multi-specialty electronic health record system. So this was a system using tablets that our doctors took with them into nursing homes and were able to document everything electronically and digitally and then transmit it back to our office server, which then transmitted the medical note to the nursing home fax machine. So we were just way ahead of our time. This goes back 19, 20 years ago at this point, uh, building something so sophisticated, which actually resulted in a bidding war when we sold out uh, and allowed me to make enough money that I never needed to work again. Uh, and I actually tried retiring for one year. It was the worst year of my life. So anyway, not going to happen again. Interesting. Actually became depressed. You, you and I maybe cut from the same cloth on that one. Okay, so what year was this when you did the EHR? So that's 2000, 2001? Yeah, I'd say around that time. Because I, I definitely heard of Health Drive. I didn't, know it was, I didn't know it was yours, and I didn't know you had a sophisticated EHR back then. The Urgent Cares that I started, we started using NextGen about 2005, I think, and we were, we were early, so you were way early, particularly on the mobile front. That's pretty genius. Yeah, well, it was a necessity because trying to deliver records to the doctors every day uh, physically became exhausting and very expensive and uh, unsustainable. And so, you know, the old phrase, uh, necessity is the mother of invention. Uh, we felt the need to build something that could solve that problem. And and we had a very good tech team. And uh we actually used people in Belarus to supplement our in-house tech team. And it worked out very well, man. We built something quite amazing. I think they're still using the same product today, 20 years later, because it was so far ahead of its time. But of course, they've made you know major improvements to it. But it was really uh, pretty ingenious uh, what our tech team put together. So you had a group of basically hospitalists and dentists they went around to all these long-term care facilities and saw patients. So you were a really early hospitalist company, it sounds like. Well, not so. we had some primary care, but we were mostly dentists, dental hygienists, optometrists, opticians, podiatrists, podorthists, audiologists. Wow. Yeah, that's that was way ahead of your time. Okay, so you sold out, you sold, um, you sold Health Drive, and then what? So I heard that, you know, the Affordable Care Act was coming out and I heard that it was going to change the paradigm in medicine with a greater focus on prevention. And so I decided to open up a primary prevention medical center that was based on insurance. Little did I know that there was more lip service paid to prevention than actual reimbursement. And uh, I spent uh, $2 million, my money and a friend's money, putting together this state-of-the-art prevention medical center that included nutritionists, exercise physiologists, yoga instructor, psychologists, PhD in health education, nurse practitioners, myself, teaching kitchen, classroom, gymnasium, the whole kit and caboodle. And it was unbelievable what kind of clinical results we were accomplishing, but there was no meaningful reimbursement to cover our efforts. And then my brother got sick uh, and I spent a lot of time by his bedside till he passed. 
so that business was doomed from two perspectives. In fact, I published an article in The Atlantic in January 2014. All the challenges we faced in putting forth a preventive primary prevention model in the U.S., including local doctor uh, hurdles and the hospital system hurdles. Uh, you could read it, it, published in the Atlantic, January 2014. It was really, I got a lot of notoriety from that article. Interesting. So how long was that clinic open for? Was it three, three years. years? Three years. Interesting. And you're able to track some basically basic improvements of health for the people you interacted with? 100-pound weight gains, multiple patients lowering uh, insulin, hypertensive medications, statins, uh, people just feeling much better about themselves. Uh, we were doing, I literally think, some miracle work. Uh, but the long and short of it, for example, Medicare was reimbursing for something called intensive behavioral therapy for obesity. For a 15-minute session with a patient, which typically a physician would get about $75, they were reimbursing $25. It was costing me $50 to provide the service. So I was the only idiot in the country that was providing that service at a relatively high level, generated about $35,000 in revenue. And I got audited. And initially, they wanted all the money back. And I said, why? And they were wrong on multiple fronts. And they eventually, they left me alone. But I said, one idiot in this country actually accepts $25 for 15 minutes, and they actually want to take the money back, even though they ended up not. I said, this is just a broken system, and I'm not going to fix it in this particular effort. Wow. Okay. All right. So when did you go to Stanford? So I went to Stanford in 2015. I was accepted into a program called the Distinguished Careers Institute, started by a guy named Phil Pizzo, who used to be the dean of the medical school. Uh, it was a program for people who had had very successful careers. So like the number seven guy at Apple was there and uh, a Harvard uh, JD partner from a big firm was there and uh, somebody from the Levi Strauss fortune was there. So uh, a lot of very successful people, 20 people were accepted into the program. And that program allowed me to take any course I wanted at Stanford, which is why I applied. So I took a lot of genomics because it turns out my brother had a genetic mutation that was responsible for his cancers. Uh, and so I was really obsessed with trying to understand the genetic predisposition to disease because in my preventive medicine clinic, I started giving lectures all over Florida. And one of the big themes was genetics is secondary to lifestyle. And because of my brother's genetic mutation, I said, you know, maybe I don't know as much about genetics as I should. And my thing now is genetics loads the gun and lifestyle pulls the trigger. But sometimes genetics loads the gun and pulls the trigger even without the lifestyle. And so I spent a year studying and then I spent the second year at Stanford involved with a research project that looked at whether Stanford doctors know how to do risk assessments, particularly around hereditary issues. And the answer was no. And we published that. And the third year, Stanford gave me a grant to actually build one of the early prototypes of what we've built at SOAP. And then I left Stanford and spent two years at Harvard as a visiting scientist, continuing to do, a, did a small pilot at Harvard of, of an early prototype. And then I started the company in uh, September, 2019. All right, so I wanna get in, I wanna talk about SOAP because it's such, it's little stuff I love. But let's talk about the year when you, when you uh, tried to retire. 
What what did you do during that year? I mean, did you go out and play golf seven days a week? Did you sit on the beach? What 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 occupied your time and your thoughts? I actually played the stock market and did exceptionally well. Made uh, over seven hundred thousand uh, dollars playing the market with my older brother. But honestly, it was the most intellectually dissatisfying, stress-inducing year of my life. Uh, actually, had no reason to get out of bed in the morning. Uh, just laid in bed with a laptop on my on my lap and and played the stock market and uh, was horrible and and yeah most people would say if you make seven hundred thousand dollars in a year basically betting on something that's a pretty good year for me it was the worst year of my life. How quickly? How soon into that year did you know this was going south? In other words, how soon did you know? Okay, this was cool. Maybe it's not cool at all, but it's not for me. Very early on, and my wife started becoming very concerned that, you know, all I do is follow the stock market all day and all night. And, you know, and then at the end of the day, what do I really know about the stock market? Nothing. I mean, the reason I made so much money because the market went up that year. Okay. Everything I touched, literally everything I touched, I made money on. And I realized that, you know, when it was going down, I had a, like a little pit in my stomach. And when it was going up, I, I didn't really feel any satisfaction because I knew it was just luck. Interesting. I always say it's better to be lucky than smart, but you know, at the end of the day, I, I need both intellectual stimulation, I need social interaction, I need um, and want to impact uh, other people's lives, not just you know, self serve. Okay, so all right, so you you did that for about a year, realized it wasn't for you. Then went through the Stanford, then Harvard. So let's talk no, no, about uh, no. Then I opened up oh, that three-year yes. uh, preventive medicine. And then I went to Stanford and Harvard. All right. Well, looking back at it, just for folks who are going to—I mean, I mean—hopefully we're in a better time now than we were in 2017 when you did that. I mean, arguably, I like to think we're a little bit more about prevention now than we used to be. Maybe we're not. It's probably not reimbursed much better. But looking back, what would you have done differently to make that successful? Would, would a cash business, would that have made it successful? You know, it might have. Um, a cash business in the right location where there are wealthy people. But that's not what I was going for. I was really going for to create a new model of primary prevention, primary care in the United States. Um, I've been, you know, having made money already, money, making more money wasn't the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal was to develop a legacy of having built something incredible that truly changed lives. And so, um, but charging private could have made a big difference. And the other thing um, that someone asked me early on was creating a digital version of it, as opposed to a brick and mortar, because we spent a lot of money building out a 4,000 square foot center. Uh, and that took several hundred thousand of the 2 million and and then maintaining that center was very expensive. So the brick and mortar um, part of it. Yeah, I just want to add one thing for your listeners. You know, someone might listen to this and say, oh, this guy obviously is a smart guy. And, you know, maybe I'm not as smart as him. So let me tell you that applying to Brooklyn College out of high school, I was rejected. The local community college, because I was not a good high school student. And in fact, one of the teachers once went around the room asking, telling everybody what he think he or she would, uh, he would become. And to me, he said, artist. 
because he had no confidence in my intellectual capability. So I did not impress virtually anyone, maybe one teacher in eighth grade, but otherwise I didn't impress anybody growing up as a smart kid. And in fact, in second grade, I overheard a teacher tell my parents that your child is fundamentally lazy. And so that stuck with me into early adulthood, that I was the hardest working, laziest person in the world because the teacher must be right. I'm lazy. So anyway, I just want people to realize it wasn't smooth sailing for me. Nothing came to me easily. Everything was a struggle, but I but I persevered and, and persisted and with and some tenacity. That's what the key to success was for me. It's it's funny. There's a there's a theme in a lot of these discussions, and resilience seems to be one of the themes. Um, I come from the same era of you know, my, my uh, getting C's and D's on report cards all through high school and grade school. And my parents thinking, you know, this guy will never even get into college, let alone make anything of himself. So I can totally identify with that. Um, let, let's talk about let's talk about soap. So you did the product, you did validate uh, while you're at Stanford and validate was, I understand, the early version of soap. What, what is soap? So SOAP stands for Subjective Objective Assessment Plan. It's one of the uh, formats that physicians document a patient encounter. And the basic uh, idea behind it is that we all know that doctors, particularly internal medicine, primary care, subspecialists, are having a really tough time these days. Uh, The pandemic was really just another whack on the side. But between administrative burdens and time constraints and, and insufficient reimbursement coupled with decision fatigue and cognitive bias and knowledge deficits, it's really tough to be a physician. And in fact, according to the American Medical Association, physicians get sued at a rate that 65% of them are sued by age 55. Now, why are they getting sued? Because they're making diagnostic errors. And If you ask a physician, are you the one making diagnostic errors? They always say no, but it's estimated that up to 15% of medical encounters results in a diagnostic error, costing over 250,000 lives a year and nearly a trillion dollars. And the two most common reasons these diagnostic errors are made is because physicians with cognitive bias often have the wrong context when the patient comes in and they cut short the exploration too soon. In fact, the two most common diagnostic errors are missing early cancers, as in the case of my brother, and missing early heart disease, as in my case. And so the challenge is we're not going to suddenly find more time for physicians to spend with patients. In fact, adjusted for inflation, internal medicine doctors are paid less than they were in the 1970s before diagnostic-related groups in 1982 were implemented. So they're not paid enough. They don't have enough time. They're trying to, you know, get by with a certain volume of patients a day to sustain their livelihoods. And therefore, unfortunately, mistakes are being made. And so we at SOAP have built what we believe to be the new gold standard of the perfect medical assistant. And it's comprised of several parts. One of them is called the perfect medical interviewer. And we have a patent now on the use of the perfect medical interviewer, which is a conversational AI-powered digital human. So this is an animated character, a young woman with a white coat sitting in a chair that's talking to you like you're talking to a person. And she's doing a far more comprehensive medical interview 
than most doctors have the time and inclination to do these days. And she uses branching logic and she uses natural language processing. And she uses a whole bunch of different tools, including intuitive imagery, to really get the most accurate responses, including giving you time to pause and do some research. And studies have shown that when human beings interact with a digital human, they tend to disclose both more about themselves and more honestly about themselves. So we had a situation with a young Hispanic woman who was going to be sent to the wrong doctor because she failed to disclose to the doctors and nurses that she had been sexually abused. And because she disclosed it to the digital human, which then disclosed it to the doctor, they were able to make the right referral and diagnosis. So having truthful, more truthful responses is very important because as a study showed uh, a couple of years ago, more than half of Americans lie to their doctors about things potentially embarrassing. And up to 30% of mental health patients don't disclose their symptoms to their doctors. So with a digital human that can get a more truthful, accurate, and comprehensive response, right away we're starting out with better data. And also the fact that it's uh, always accessible, infinitely patient, sometimes funny, surrounded by intuitive imagery, reflecting answers back to the user, it is truly the perfect medical interviewer. But doctors told us they don't want more information on their patients. I did a survey sponsored by the National Science Foundation. Why? Because more information is more work and they don't have time to do more work. And more information might include something important. If they miss it, they have fear of liability. So I took 12 sets of medical association guidelines and with the help of experts at Harvard and Stanford, we created hundreds of algorithms focused on early disease risk based on hereditary factors, lifestyle factors, social determinants of health, mental health, environmental uh, exposures, and finally preventive measure utilization. And these algorithms then take all the data we collect and do risk assessments everywhere from who should get a sexually transmitted test uh, to who should get a bone densitometry to who should get a chest CT scan to who should get genetic testing because of a cancer syndrome or genetic testing for a cardiology syndrome. Uh, syndrome. It does all that. So, okay, so the, the patient comes in or they do it virtually, they do it online, they go through the... Totally, any, any web-enabled device, it's cloud-based, the application. So then by the time, so it's me, so by the time I come in to see you as a provider, you have this really comprehensive, redacted in some respects, because it gets to the point, history, not physical, but history of why I'm actually there. Does it, does it suggest diagnoses based upon my history? It does. It, it provides a score diagnosis for a tool uh, developed by somebody else that we incorporated, but we feed it with so much information that we significantly enhance its diagnostic capabilities. Um, and I'll just give you a quick example. The genie, the digital human, will say, so what concerns do you want to share with your doctor? And you'll say, well, I need to renew a prescription. And she'll say, which prescription? And you'll say metformin. And she'll say, great, I'll let the doctor know you need to renew metformin. Anything else you want to share with the doctor? And, she, and you'll say, yeah, I'm very depressed. Uh, I think I might kill myself. She'll say, whoa, I'm concerned about what I just heard. Here's the number for the National Suicide Hotline. 
please take advantage of it. Or you say, I have a tummy ache. And she'll say, well, have you had that before? And you'll say, um, yes. And she'll say, well, what was the diagnosis? If you say no, she'll say, okay, well, when did you first become aware of it? And then she'll go through a series of questions about if it's pain, how severe is it? Where exactly is it located? What makes it better? What makes it worse? Uh, how has it changed since you first became aware of it? If it's a cough, she'll ask questions about, is it a productive cough? You know, are you coughing up anything? What color is it? So she'll go into detailed, specific questions. And that's what we use for the diagnosis. And then we put it into a soap note. But on top of the soap note, we have a special color-coded summary section of the most important findings. Because another thing that doctors told me is that they miss up to 40% of what patients write on their health history forms. And in fact, patients told me, because I did 25 patients as well, that they suspect that doctors don't read their health history forms all that carefully. So we basically created something to make it impossible for the doctor to miss anything important. And we're working now on two more modules, which I won't reveal publicly. The first one has to do about labs, and the second one has to do with confirming diagnosis after the visit. Because one of the big problems in America is that you don't always see the same doctor from visit to visit. And so you walk out with the wrong diagnosis, you never come back. And that doctor has no clue that he or she got the wrong diagnosis. And oftentimes it's just compounded because the next physician looks at the first physician and says, oh, you have a history of X. It turns out to be wrong, but we all cognitive bias base our, base our belief system on that misdiagnosis. That, that is really... Quite amazing. Look, seven plus years of uncompensated effort working essentially seven days a week. And it allows you, if you surround yourself with some highly capable people, to do amazing things. In fact, I'll tell you, John, um, I like to use this analogy to something that's ascribed to Henry Ford, but it's dubious he ever said it. Henry Ford supposedly was once asked, once said that if he asked his customers what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. I believe that most digital health companies are looking at fundamentally flawed medical workflow processes and saying, let's try to incrementally improve it by digitizing it. So let's create automated horses, digital horses. We, on the other hand, at SOAP are thinking about cars, but we also understand that cars can't operate in a vacuum. A car has no value if there's no road for the car, if there's no gas station to fill up on, if there's no repair shop when things break, if there's no traffic signs and people to police those traffic signs, cars would be crashing into each other. Tires, radios, lights, you know, the early car, I, was, I asked my kid, uh, my son-in-law and daughter yesterday, how did the early cars drive at night? So they said, with lights. I said, but what lights? What did they do before they had lights? And they said, they didn't drive. I said, no, they put kerosene lamps at the front of the uh, bicycle frames. The point of the matter is there were steps into the car of today, right? Multiple steps that had to be taken of fixing problems. And similarly, if you're going to build a car, you have to be thinking about its role within the greater ecosystem. And that's what we're doing. It. So that's why I have so many discussions with other companies about collaborating because no one can do it alone in healthcare today. Yeah, so so true. So is your is soap embedded or will it be embedded in different current EHRs like the Epics and the Cerners and the Athenas of the world? Yes, absolutely, because 
physicians don't like to use two separate systems. They want to use one uh, system and they want to use it as a tab within the system. So our goal is to uh, have a tab within major EHRs where people click on it, open up our browser, edit our note, finish the note, upload it to uh, a discrete field within the EHR. And we've practiced on the Epic Concerner databases. Um, and we have somebody joining us from Cerner who's been there for 20 years. And we're meeting with Epic uh, next week uh, through the Mayo Clinic program that we're in right now. Uh, we're also working with American Heart Association right now. We're also working with a major life insurance company right now. Uh, we just went through a big accelerator called Mass Challenge. Uh, we're working with a large medical group in rural Alabama. We're going to do a pilot there in the next few weeks. That's exciting. And yeah. it will, it will change, it'll certainly change the world as far as data acquisition goes, because you're right. Make I remember, I can't even tell you how many times I've, you know, you have a medical student or resident go in, they come back, they tell you the whole story, and you go in there, you ask two questions, you're like, like, dude, you are, I mean, I get what you're saying, but you kind of definitely miss the elephant in the room. He, this is why they're here. And then I always think of, well, how many times that happened to me where I go down this path thinking, you know, I'm fat, dumb, and happy. And all of a sudden, I'm like, holy crap, I totally missed the real reason why they're here. Uh, because either they they said it and I missed it, or they were too embarrassed to say it. So, yeah. very, very cool. Here's a uh, very important statistic. Most early heart disease is missed in patients with clear risk factors for heart disease. And the three most major problems with missing early heart disease is failing to do an additional test failing to refer to a cardiologist and failing to generate an extensive enough differential diagnosis. These are actual statistics out of studies. Oh yeah, no, I, I, I see it all the time. I do, you know, quite a bit of expert work and, and, and I see it all the time where it's like, if you don't write it down, you didn't think about it. So the physicians, I mean, we always say, well, of course I thought about that. I'm like, that's great, but you didn't do anything to prove or disprove it, nor did you write down that you were concerned about it. So in the plaintiff attorney's mind, you didn't even think about it. And right. so, you know, as I said to somebody yesterday, uh, one of our medical advisors, I said, human beings are only willing to go so far to accomplish something. And that also includes physicians who have basically told me, look, I'll give a patient a fair amount of time as needed, but up to a limit. AI will have no limits. AI will never get tired, which is why when even in the early days of AI beating uh, chess masters, by the second game, the AI was unaffected by the first game. The chess master was mentally exhausted. Yeah. And so AI within the relatively near future is going to be smarter than the average doctor and, and not too long from there is going to be smarter than the smartest doctor. No, I totally agree. And when you combine AI with a physician, which is kind of what you're doing, because the physician still does the physical exam and synthesizes the data, yep. it's. Uh, I think they showed that with Big Blue and Chess. When they combine it with with Kasparov, it was much smarter than AI alone or Kasparov alone. Very cool. What do you see? Do you see this becoming the standard of care at some point in the near future? Like, if you don't have an AI derived subjective and objective, or I guess subjective, you'll fail, so you'll be below standard of care? Well, look, AI has to be more than the hype that's associated with it right now, which is why I get a lot of criticism why I haven't started selling my product yet. 
because the first rule of being a physician is first do no harm. And this idea when it comes to software development that you throw an MVP out there and you see how well it operates doesn't sit well with me as a physician. To me, this thing has to be exceptional when the first patient uses it. And it's pretty close to that. You know, we're, we just rebuilt it uh, over the last six months to come out with a mobile first design and for it to work well on all uh, cloud-based products. And we're now drilling it clinically, just going over it and over it and over it just to make sure that it doesn't miss a question, that it's thinking about everything. Because when we put it in front of a patient, you know, perfection at this point may not be possible, but it's got to be better than the human. So that's how it's going to help the human doctor be the best version of themselves. Yeah, I mean, the so it does not have to be FDA approved, right? Because it's not actually making a diagnosis, it's making suggestions. Right. Well, look, I mean, the FDA is coming out with some new guidelines in the short and in the, in the not too distant future. I heard the uh, head of interoperability, um, uh, Mickey Tripathi, speak at the Mayo Clinic Platform Conference. So there's going to be some new rules coming out. So I can't speak to the new rules. Right now, I don't believe that we require any type of FDA approval. But you know what? I welcome FDA approval because at the end of the day, the product should work appropriately. You know, interesting enough, we had a meeting uh, the other day with some AI experts at Google, and all they could talk about was, you know, the ethics of AI and transparency. And I said to them, let me ask you something. I think this transparency stuff is overblown. We don't have transparency in most drug trials. We don't exactly know the exact mechanism by which drugs operate and, and how they help. And in fact, some of the biggest breakthroughs have been drugs who we thought worked in one way and we applied it to something else and it worked even better. My, my first cousin had a child with a major epileptic seizure disorder that nothing would help until they gave him ADHD medication. And suddenly out of nowhere, the seizures were completely controlled. So we don't have transparency. And when you go to a doctor, how much transparency do you have into the doctor's thinking? Okay, which doctor sits there and explains to you exactly why he or she is reaching the diagnosis and treatment plan? So look, you know, this stuff is overblown. It's the same like with autonomous vehicles. You know, if autonomous vehicle kills one person instead of three people because it makes the right choice on the road, we're going to crucify the manufacturer of that autonomous vehicle. But it still did the right thing. And similarly, the AI shouldn't be held to a higher standard than human beings. It should be held to at least as high a standard as the best human being, but it shouldn't be held to a standard of perfection because if we hold, if we put out those standards, we're never going to be able to benefit from this stuff. Yeah, I'm not, I couldn't agree more, but I do see a very near-term future. of It will become the standard of care um, for physicians and for medical providers to have an AI-driven not diagnosis engine, but diagnosis suggestion uh, based upon the subjective uh, questions that it goes to the patient with. So you're uh, you're yet again ahead of the game. That's very cool. Yeah, I tell you, I just saw, you know, you mentioned earlier about uh, a doctor sees another doctor's wrong diagnosis. There was a study that came out last week about dermatopathologists. If a dermatopathologist gets information on the patient before he or she looks at their slide, it is known to influence what they see on that slide 
and it can result in them mislabeling a pathology slide because of the wrong information. So they're, so, they're worse with more information. With the wrong more information. Right, right. Interesting. Wow, I, I had not seen that, but it's not surprising because it's so easy to be, bi- I mean, I'm, you know, I'm biased every time I work in the emergency department. You walk into an exam room and you see the entire patient and maybe their family, and instantly you have some bias out of the gate. You know, if they're, yeah. Yeah, cognitive bias. Look, first of all, let's acknowledge that physicians are human beings and they're biased in general, just like everybody else. Okay, just because you go to medical school doesn't eliminate your bias. And then there's cognitive bias. You see something over and over again, right? They teach us in medical school, when you hear hoofbeats, think of horses, not zebras. And so if you keep seeing horse after horse after horse in a day, when the zebra walks in, you're going to think it's the horse. Okay, because why? The zebras present, like cancer and heart disease, presents with the most benign symptoms early on. Right. Right. So you're taught to think of horses, not zebras. And that's why we miss the zebras. And when you find late cancer and late heart disease, you've doomed people. But, you know, can you really blame human beings that are paid, you know, I mean, they're paid better than the average population physicians. But again, they're not paid for the uh, stress level that they're exposed to on a daily basis of having people's lives in their hand. Yeah, no, it's true. And, you know, now we're, I, I, I don't even want to say we're post-COVID, but now with COVID, I have plenty of colleagues who are my age and younger who are kind of going, you know, I'm not trying to want to be doing this anymore because it's it's a tough gig. I mean, as everybody listening to this knows, it's, I mean, we're pretty well paid. It's distressing to hear that internists make less on a adjusted for inflation they did in the 70s so my internal medicine friends out there i'm sorry that seems ridiculous but it's, i suspect it's the same for pediatricians and most of us you know most of the other ones of us as well yeah you know i gave a lecture a few months ago i was paid to give uh turned out the audience was mostly retired doctors and the title of the lecture was the rise and fall of american medicine what comes next and I asked a question at the end of the lecture and was shocked by the response, given that it was mostly retired physicians. I said, if you had a choice between an always accessible AI powered digital doctor uh, that was always accessible, very relatively inexpensive and clinically validated versus a human who needed to be scheduled and paid considerably more, what would you choose? And 80% of the audience chose the AI doctor. And oh, I wow. ran that same survey on LinkedIn. And again, 80% chose the AI doctor. So I think we as a society are ready for these AI doctors. It's just the AI doctors have to get to a certain level before they're ready for us. Yeah, well, thanks to you. It sounds like it's maybe there sooner than uh, the majority of us realize. I'm hoping, I'm giving it everything I got. I tell people I'm gonna succeed or die trying. Amen. So, Stephen, where can people find out more about you and what you're doing? Because this is incredibly uh, interesting. So we have a website, uh, HTTPS uh, colon slash slash soap.health or just soap.health, S-O-A-P dot H-E-A-L-T-H. Somebody wants to contact me personally. It's my first initial last name at soap.health. So S-C-H-A-R-L-A-P at soap.health. 
we just basically clo closed a seed round. Uh, I've put in about a third of the total money. So I'm putting my money where my mouth is yet again. And uh, two senior executives just joined, also invested, a small VC just invested, a fund of Harvard MBAs just invested, uh, Gemstar Foundry invested, uh, the Mayo Clinic is on our cap table. Uh, so we've got some good partnerships and we're very excited about the future, but we will not sell this product until it is life-saving. Very good. Well, Stephen, thank you so much. Um, we'll, we'll contain a lot. Of, we'll have a lot of this information in the show notes. I want to thank everybody for listening. Stephen, thank you so much. It's been great chatting with you. Well, thank you for having me here and um, happy to help you in any way that uh, I could be of help. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to another great edition of Entrepreneur Rx. To find out how to start a business and help secure your future, go to johnshufeltmd.com. Thanks for listening.